Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, President Barack Obama's legacy. How has the 44th president of the United States left his mark on American history? Health care, marriage equality, renewed relations with Cuba, which will stand out as Obama's greatest or most controversial achievement. Later in the show, a centuries-old Japanese tradition makes its way to Waltham. Dovetail Sake is bringing the Far East to New England as the brewery rides the wave of American-made sake. But first, joining me by phone, Khalil Gibran Mohammed is a professor of history, race, and public policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He is also the former director of the New York Public Library Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Hello, Khalil. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad to have you. Also joining me by phone is Jim Demers, a political consultant with the Demers Group in New Hampshire. He served as an advisor and co-chair of Barack Obama's presidential campaign in New Hampshire. He currently serves as a board member of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation for the Obama administration. Hello, Jim. Hi, Callie. Also joining me in studio is Tamika Brown-Nagan, the Daniel P.S. Paul Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School and co-director of the program in Law and History at Harvard University. Tamiko is an expert in constitutional law, social and legal history, education law, and inequality. And hello to you, Tamiko. Hi, Callie. Nice to be here. So I want to start out with just the broadest of broad questions, because I'm curious to see what you all have to say coming from your uh, very expert perspectives. And that's what is the one, if you can narrow it down to one, significant moment that, in your mind, will concretize uh, his legacy. Tamika, I'll start with you. Mm-hmm. Well, I would have to say the Affordable Care Act, uh, and I say that whether or not the act is repealed. Um, that's a signature domestic policy achievement where President Obama accomplished something that presidents had contemplated or tried to do since Harry Truman. Um, it expanded access to health care uh, for, for all Americans, really, whether you are poor or middle class. Uh, the Affordable Care Act banned gender discrimination mandated certain preventative measures. Um, it, it's really an amazing law, not without uh, its its problems, but the Affordable Care Act, I think, will be the measure of all subsequent legislation to try to reform health care. And, of course, um, now we know that uh, the Republicans have passed a rule so that they can repeal it with just their numbers. They don't need anybody else. So it's likely that it will be the former. But to your point, it's still going to remain a significant part of his legacy. Over to you, Jim. Um, What would you say is the single significant moment that will concretize Barack Obama's legacy? Well, I agree. I think the Affordable Care Act will go down in history as probably one of his, maybe his biggest accomplishment we would have never gotten to that issue if he hadn't first stepped in and helped turn the economy around. And, you know, I look back on when he took over the presidency, and we were on the verge of the worst recession that this country had seen since the Great Depression. 
And, you know, he took a lot of steps that helped bring the economy back, bring jobs back. And it's pretty amazing that as he comes into his final days here, that we have the lowest unemployment in this country that we've had in years. We have a stock market that's hitting all-time highs. I, I think, you know, one of his greatest accomplishments will be turning the country around economically and getting us to where we are today. All right. Khalil, what do you say? Well, I, I want to be a little bit provocative here since I think uh, we probably covered the two major policy areas. And I'd say I'm going to interpret moment not as a policy uh, but as a moment. And I think his uh, two times being elected president uh, will go down in history as the greatest accomplishment. And I say that because uh, he really did embody the expectations of a new demographic of young voters and unprecedented demographic of multiracial Americans who saw in Obama uh, the 21st century. And he harnessed the power of the Internet to do things in the electoral arena that had never been done before. Looking back prematurely as a historian, I think that uh, the headline in every chapter written about the president uh, going forward will be that accomplishment, the fact that he did it, because it's hard to, to know now how long the ACA or uh, the economy will hold up under the next uh, presidency. History has a way of attenuating uh, accomplishments um, in the context of the policy arena. Uh, but no other president will match Obama for, for probably a century in terms of his capacity to win elections and to do them against the odds. Jim, what about that? How has he uh, changed forever, as Khalil has said? Retail politics is the way that he did it, really just going to be connected to him. And to Khalil's point, nobody else is going to be able to achieve that, perhaps? Well, he certainly did turn politics around. I mean, when I remember... You know, I committed very early to his campaign and to him uh, in the 08 election. And when David Plouffe and some of my other friends who were running the campaign said, we are going to build this amazing grassroots network, I thought they were crazy. I thought those days had ended back in the 1970s and that we were, you know, in the age of just raising as much money as you can raise and getting your face on TV. And they proved that to be totally wrong, and that, in fact, they rebuilt grassroots politics in a way that I never thought would happen. And I agree that it was amazing that when you especially contrast the 2008 election with the one we just went through, Barack Obama delivered a message that was so unifying, and it was, you know, based on this hopeful uh, future for our country. And he inspired young people to get involved like we haven't seen since the Vietnam War. And it was quite amazing. And, uh, you know, when I look at what happened this year, it was an election based on divide and conquer. That the, It was a divisive campaign that was so different from what the Obama campaign was about. And so I think that really is something that will take a long time for someone to surpass him and, and I will say this, too, because this was such an amazing moment on that November election night when America elected its first African-American president. It felt like America had finally become the America that people thought it was supposed to be. And if I can just share one story, because I think it kind of brings this to perspective, that November, Mayor Menino had brought 
a busload of inner-city residents to New Hampshire to go door-to-door campaigning. And I was in the Manchester headquarters, and there was an African-American woman standing there. She had never gone door-to-door in her life, but she did it for Obama. And she was holding a sign that had a picture of two boys on the sign. And I asked her, so who are these two boys? And she told me, as she started to cry, that they were both her sons who had both been killed Mm. by gun violence, inner-city gun violence. And her words I will never forget because she said to me, I can't help but think that if my two boys were here today and could see that an African-American is about to become the president of the United States, their lives might have been different and they might be here today. And it is that kind of hope and inspiration that he brought to this country at a time when we really needed it. And I'll, I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. Thank you, Jim, for that memory. Tamika, if you have a memory you want to share as well. But let me follow up with what Jim has said in this way, because a lot of people have pointed out that this, and I don't know how you describe it, the general affect of the Obamas, the the fact that he was there and that what he stood for as as uh, was revealed in, in Jim's story to um, this black mother. And um, some people have just talked about that being an overwhelming if you will, impact on black folks, disconnected with you know the, some of the other factors that we're talking about, health care and, mm. and economy and whatever, but just the fact that they represented excellence in this way, in the most powerful uh, role in the world. I wonder how you see that as an historian. Is that something we're just feeling in the moment and that that's going to go away? Or is mm. that something significant that's going to be written about? Well, I will say this. I agree that it's not only the fact of, of his election, it is the symbolism around him and around the first family. The Obamas have represented not only for African Americans, but for all Americans, hope, excellence, dignity, elegance. It's just been incredible to see them. Um, And I think that even some of uh, Obama's harshest critics have credited just the the dignity of the office that he has brought, um, as well as uh, the power of the First Lady to speak and to uh, inspire hope in all Americans. I think that's significant. Uh, And certainly when one starts to think about uh, what's upon us in terms of a new administration that is interested in turning back a lot of the Obama policy initiatives, one has to think that a story, and certainly I will, uh, remember the impact of the symbolism of having this first family in office. So, Khalil, we've been pretty positive up to this point, (laughs) um, but picking up from what Tomiko has just said about that symbolism, Jim talked about the impact on that black woman and her family, or what she projected would have been if they'd been able to see a Barack Obama being uh, the first African-American president. And now we come to what has been one of the sort of nagging criticisms, some of it, you know, kind of low key, certainly in the first term. But in the second term, people got a little louder with it. And that was their disappointment in his not being sort of really out front um, or doing more. I don't know how that's defined on the question of race. Um, How do you see that? And will that also be a lingering legacy, but not so positive way? Yes, I think it will be. Um, But I've come to terms with uh, sort of reflecting on the fact that as a first, uh, perhaps he, he simply or no first would have 
uh, behaved much differently. Um, this is a, a bit of a compromise in my own emotional uh, roller coaster experience with the president, uh, who I've been a big fan of uh, since uh, since I helped to knock on doors to turn out the vote in Indiana, uh, a state that turned blue in 2008 after uh, 50 years of being red and is now red again. Uh, but uh, I, I think that President Obama, uh, by dint of his personality, uh, his u- unique biography, uh, chose not uh, to govern with a specific um, agenda for closing racial gaps. And I'm using very precise language because I think it's the best way to understand uh, both his agenda and the outcomes of his election. Uh, when President Obama, as he did in the farewell address uh, we just heard uh, there recently, uh, describes his successes, there are no successes there that uh, speak directly to uh, to civil rights in, in an explicit way. Uh, he talks about marriage equality, of course. Uh, he talks about advocating for gender in the Lely Ledbetter Act. But he doesn't talk about the fact that when we look at unemployment from the beginning of the recession to the complete turnaround and the unprecedented, uh, unmatched uh, private jo- sector job growth, we still have a two-time employment gap between black and white. Um, it seemed to me that one way to reflect on Obama's own agenda would be to say that, yes, we have the lowest unemployment uh, in American history at 4.7%, but we've also closed the gap between black and white Americans. And I'm proud of that, uh, because as the first black president, that was something that was important to me. It didn't happen, and we're never going to hear it from the president. Um, He reached for universal. uh, He wanted trickle-down racial justice, and that's what he got. And I think to the extent that, as an American citizen, I want to applaud him for having uh, saved the economy, for... Uh, having made a contribution to affordable health care, um, to really moving the needle for LGBT Ameri- to Americans, and, although it's a very mixed uh, record, uh, for certainly speaking to the humanity of uh, immigrants and undocumented residents of our country. But there isn't much to say uh, with respect to uh, his predecessors. If I think about a Lyndon Baines Johnson, if I think about FDR, I think about people written into the annals of African-American history where we can point to tangible civil rights successes uh, that changed America. Uh, They had their own first to bear. Uh, FDR, as you recall, uh, was responsible for desegregating the defense industries on the basis of non-discrimination because it wasn't going to happen any other way. Uh, LBJ's record is obvious uh, for both managing to create consensus around the civil rights bills and getting them passed, and he sacrificed his second term. It's really hard to compare Obama to those significant achievements by two people he's been frequently compared to, um, other than the fact that he served the office with tremendous dignity um, as a role model for people of color all over the globe. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Khalil Muhammad, and you just heard him there, Tamiko Brown-Nagan of Harvard University. Khalil Muhammad is from Harvard as well. And political consultant Jim Demers, based in New Hampshire, is with me as well. So how do you assess, I guess, what some call lingering disappointment? I guess you've hit on that a little bit, Khalil, but was the expectation too high, Tamiko, that— 
unlike an FDR or even a Lyndon Baines Johnson, who sort of grew into whatever their greatest moments were and had the time to do that, uh, because nobody came in saying, well, you, I'm expecting you to do this. Of course, as we know, Lyndon Johnson came in after Kennedy. Uh, FDR, who knew what nobody could have imagined what he was going to do. Was that expectation such that the legacy, that his legacy is shaped by, in some way, disappointment because he didn't achieve a bar that we thought he should? Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's accurate. And I, I would say that the expectation was probably different from Obama's own inclinations, as Khalil has, has mentioned. Um, you know, he believes in universalist policies. He does. And I think there's a lot to be said for his policy initiatives in terms of helping to close the gap. So when we think about education and his initiatives around uh, charter schools or getting more money into education, his uh, community college initiative, uh, trying to make community college um, free, those are initiatives that have an impact in terms of uh, closing the racial gap. Now, the problem, of course, for Obama, twofold. One, there's black exceptionalism, right? So African-Americans in particular need policies that are directed to the discrimination and the intergenerational disadvantage that they face. But there also was an enormous amount of racism and pushback against Obama because uh, are related to however you want to to you know to to characterize it his uh, his uh, symbolism his being first his being African American his being identified as progressive from the get go uh, so in other words I'm saying uh, I'm reaching a, a position I think that is somewhat like Khalil's that. I sort of grade him on a curve um, because of what he was up against, but also because I do take seriously uh, this notion that uh, the universal policies had an impact that was disproportionate to some extent on uh, African-Americans, people of color. And I do think that he was passionate. He is passionate about those things, but he approached it in a different way, and we ought to respect uh, that approach. And that's my guest, Tamiko Brown-Nagan of Harvard University. So, Jim Tamers, let me put it to you in this way, coming from your place as a person who's worked with uh, President and continues to work with uh, President Obama and also really is a political operative. I mean, you got to think through the lens of politics. When we talk about this sort of lingering sense of disappointment of what he could what he could do or or not do, you've been with folks who have promised stuff or felt or saw people expect something of them, and yet politically they're hemmed in. So how do you see his trying to be who he was, be be come through uh, with the passion that Tomiko says he has, but framed by the very real politics he had to play? Well, and that was one of the most difficult challenges he had. So I think, you know, the 08 campaign was one of, unity and a lot of people felt like he would be able to pull Congress together and get things done. And right from the beginning, he was faced with the most partisan gridlock that you could ever imagine as a president of the country. You know, Mitch McConnell, in those opening days of the congressional session, basically said, we're not going to do anything that helps you get reelected, even if it hurts the American people. And we really did see you know, partisanship like we've never seen before. And, you know, there were some who say, well, that was 
Republicans versus Democrats. There are some that claim there was a you know hidden level of bigotry there. I actually think there was a significant amount of resentment that mm. you know half of the United States Senate believes they're going to be president of the United States someday, maybe even more than half. And you had this young senator who hadn't even served a full term um, have this meteoric rise right past all of the Democrats who were running for president, right past John McCain and all the Republicans. And I think there were a lot of people in Washington who resented this young guy that did what they thought should be them. And I think that played a very big part. But, you know, from the first day, he was faced with this difficult task of what do I bring forward and how do I do it? Because I'm not going to get much done with Republican support. And they made that very clear. And I think we've never seen a president that has been so directly hit by the opposition party with this roadblock type mentality. You know, one of the things that um, I've always been impressed by, and I think I'm reading it right, I'd like to get a, a take from each of you, is that he just seemed to be, even in the darkest moments, really overwhelmingly optimistic in my mind, too much mm -hmm. so. Because mm -hmm. just, Jim, what you just said, why did he believe those, that he could even talk to those people? At a certain point, it seemed to me earlier on, he should have realized, this is not going to work. I'm going to stop trying to do this. I got to do something different earlier. That's my frustration, is that it just felt like he kept trying and kept trying to Miko, and that wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do think that um, it's accurate to see him as a, a very optimistic uh, sort of person. Um, I want to say that a part of it has to do with his own biography. Mm. I think a part of it has to do with what it takes to be a first, that symbolism, what it takes to think that you can sort of jump the line, as we were just discussing. He's optimistic. One has to, to think where we would be if, if he didn't have that, um, that characteristic, given the context um, in which he has governed, given the partisanship, given the, the difficulties, the collapsing of the economy. So, so again, I go back to this idea of uh, trying to, to grade him uh, mm. on a curve. Mm. Um, because, you know, this is this is the, the president that we have. He has um, these personal characteristics. I think that he is a, a liberal visionary, but a moderate in terms of his temperament and in terms of his inclination of working with others. And um, this is what we got. Khalil, what do you think about that optimistic take that I think that he had that maybe derailed him early on? Yeah, I, I think I think uh, Tomiko hit it on the head. It, it is part of his biography. I think we saw at, at crucial moments uh, that the president's default position uh, is to see the best in people uh, and not to go low, as, as his uh, first lady and uh, wife, Michelle, uh, reminded us in the last days of the Trump campaign. I, I think that's part of their uh, family DNA. It's who they are as people. Uh, and that's to be respected and applauded. But I, I think there's something here we ought not miss, and that is that Barack Obama is a politician, too. And we cannot take at face value every decision, every speech he's given as a perfect indication of what's in his heart. Uh, Barack Obama is, as we talk today, rewriting history um, to secure his legacy. And let me give you a very clear example. Um, if you recall, just before the end of the election, uh, the presidential election, uh, he stumped hard on behalf of 
uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and really uh, spoke directly to the base saying, you are voting for my legacy to cast a vote for, for Hillary Clinton. I mean, he put all of his cards on the table. But I think he was being sincere in that. Now, the problem is that Barack Obama, in every election, and including in this most recent election, drew the people into his orbit in ways that he did not when he governed. Mm. He did not harness the realpolitik um, of everyday hard-knuckle politics when he was trying to pass legislation. He did not want the same community activists that were challenging him on uh, issues of police violence and criminal justice and, and broad trends of racial injustice in, in this country to be unleashed in terms of their own direction towards the federal government. He kept those people um, under a tight rein, except when he needed them to show up at the polls in 08, in 12, and at 16. Because if you recall, he spent a lot of time telling Black Lives Matter activists that it's really important for you to understand the limits of government, to understand that bureaucracies don't move quickly, and essentially to grow up, to, to, mm. to understand that there's compromise in all of this. And there's a real disconnect between the way he governed his base in terms of their community activism prospects and the way that he spoke about um, the need for coming together during election time. In the farewell address to come full circle, he applauded directly the people for helping him to become a better president. He gave credit to the people for helping to make the accomplishments of ACA and, and marriage equality. But the truth is that Obama really didn't harness those people. So I think as a politician, he's also been very savvy about using optimism as a way of getting people motivated, particularly at the polls, and at the same time backing away from that appeal um, when he didn't want those same people to be motivated to critique the White House. Hmm. That's my guest, Khalil Muhammad from Harvard University. And now, Jim Demers, this is your, your baby, politics. Uh, <laughs> some people say that what Khalil has said, you know, rings true, seems to make sense, uh, but... In fact, what he did, what he was able to do, which we how we began this conversation, was just simply not transferable. That it accrues to him in this sort of perfect storm of talent, biography, moment in time, whatever. And it just, no matter what he did, it wouldn't have, he couldn't have transferred it over, he couldn't have moved it in some way. What, what do you say to that? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if he could have or not. But I, I will say that as a politician, and I know this is an unusual word to use to describe a grown adult, but he had an unbelievable level of maturity as a politician. And, and I say that because when he lost the New Hampshire primary, you might remember he came in out of Iowa with a very big lead. And by the time the vote was counted, he lost New Hampshire by two points to Hillary Clinton. And I remember that night, you know, I actually said to him, I'm sorry we didn't deliver New Hampshire for you. And he wasn't the kind of guy who was going to complain. He, I remember him looking at me and saying, you don't have to apologize. I'm going to be a better candidate because of this. This race will go on. And then, you know, when you saw who he picked to have around him in key spots, you know, a lot of politicians would have said, I'm not picking Joe Biden to be my running mate. He was my opponent. I can't do that. Or I'm not picking Hillary Clinton to uh, be Secretary of State. Uh, that was my opponent. But he was mature enough to know that these people had important skills that could be helpful to the administration. 
and he could get beyond that. And I know, you know, I keep contrasting Barack Obama and 2008 to this election that just took place, but it, it is an amazing contrast because Barack Obama has a level of political maturity that we certainly don't see in the next president that's coming. And so I think there will be a day very soon, it's already happening, when people will say, I wish Barack Obama could stay for another four years. Go ahead, Tomiko. Well, I wanted to um, piggyback on these two comments by by um, emphasizing um, that, you know, part of the president's legacy has to be that his his popularity evidently didn't transfer for his party. Um, typically, we think about the president of the United States as the leader of the party. And if one measures him um, by that yardstick, things aren't looking so great. You know, I think we're down to 16 uh, governorships uh, among Democrats. The number of senators, Democratic senators, has declined. Both houses are, are Republican-controlled. Um, and, and I think that is, is, is not a very good legacy. And it's something that uh, the president has to take some responsibility for, even as he um, has been this you know, savvy politician as an individual and quite popular. Um, Tamiko, I wonder if you give me a memory that you think symbolizes or represents what you think a big part of his legacy will be. Hmm. Well, I think that uh, going back to some of the things that Jim was raising, I think it was very savvy and big of him to invite uh, Hillary Clinton to be a part of his administration. It seemed like that he was both a big person, but it was just it was a master stroke. Um, it was very clever. And I think in a way that it symbolizes who Barack Obama is. Jim, do you have another memory? Well, my memory goes to uh, that November 4th election, 2008, when he and his family walked out on that stage in front of that mammoth crowd in Chicago and uh, how Americans reacted to that. I, I remember cars were driving up and down the main street in Manchester, New Hampshire, honking the horns, and there was so much excitement that, you know, we had this new young president who was going to take over. And I will never forget the kind of inspiration that he brought to young people and voters when that election took place. All right, Khalil. All right. I have, I have two. I'm going to change. Oh, good. One, the, the, real, the real passion that he demonstrated and pain of empathy for the children of uh, Newtown um, in the wake of that massacre. Um, I- I've never seen anything quite like that from, uh, from, from any leader of a nation. Um, and so I, that will always burn in my memory uh, for, for what he represented that day as a parent and as a leader of this country. The second is much lighter, and that is uh, using anger. Uh, Luther, his uh, anger translator, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and the bucket list. I mean, that's just brilliant. Um, and, and, and really, I, again, to me, shows you how tongue-in-cheek uh, and how smart uh, this president can be in playing to his own uh, perceptions from the outside. Who knows what's, it, what's always in his heart, but he certainly knows what other people are thinking about him. 
<laughs> well, for me, there's uh, a couple as well. First of all, I just love that photo of the little boy in the in the oh, White yes. House asking him to, is, is your hair the same as mine? I mean, that thing, it's just really, <laughs> if, if he didn't do anything else, just the sight of him leaning over, who's so tall and the little boy so little and patting his hair and my goodness, we'll be following up with that child for the rest of his life just to see what what that what that situation and that memory um, did for him. Um, I also have to say, just because uh, of the cleverness that you mentioned using uh, Luther early on in the first term, if you remember, he uh, some he was speaking at a rally and maybe he was on the campaign trail. Jim, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And he said something and he brushed his shoulder off, um, and the folks went crazy. His critics went nuts, thinking that you know he was doing a rap, uh, a gang sign. It was a whole crazy thing, and it was an indication of, woo, that's a lot of culture that most of America knows nothing about. So all of the millennials, of course, no matter what color they are, said, of course, that's not what it is. And But that was, to me, very interesting along the way. And those two things sort of you just you know stand out as uh, representative of what it meant to have a real change in that White House uh, holistically, both from a cultural aspect, certainly racial, and then, you know, just for who he was as a person and perspective. So real quick rounds, legacy is a long game. So early in his wake, what do you think will stand out for most people as they reflect on his legacy? And longer term, is that, go- is that going to change, Tamiko? Hmm. Well, one thing I would uh, point to as a part of his legacy that we haven't mentioned that I think will have both short-term and long-term resonance is the Supreme Court and the appointment of Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, which is, you know, it's both a short-term game and a long-term game, and and that's profound. Um, Those appointments, but also the uh, diversification of the federal bureaucracy and of the lower courts. Jim? I think people remember him forever for bringing marriage equality, that it took a lot of courage to step forward, and it impacted so many American lives that that will be something that will go down in history forever. And, you know, we didn't even get into some of the things he did on climate change and Mm. the Paris Accord. I think he just did so much when you really stop to think about it that he hasn't fully gotten credit for at a time when it was really hard to work with Congress. And I think ultimately people remember him and his wife and his family as just a real class act that didn't end up with any scandals during the eight years that they lived in the White House. Amen to that. (laughs) Khalil, last word from you. And of special interest to me, and I think uh, we we would be remiss if we didn't mention it. Um, Listen, this president is going to get credit uh, for taking a stand, uh, albeit very late in his two terms, but nevertheless a demonstrable stand for criminal justice reform. We've seen the escalation of DOJ investigations, of which he, of course, through Eric Holder and then later uh, Loretta Lynch, uh, helped to support and to spur. And as recently as January 5th, published in the Harvard Law Review, a comprehensive statement about the work of his administration and the role of a president in setting a standard and template for fundamental justice in our criminal justice system, and particularly on matters of racial disparity and systemic racism. And this will improve his legacy over time. It is already a sign 
of significant change from where he began um, to where he ends. Well, I thank you all for your very thoughtful answers and reflections and insight. And I guess I'll probably circle back to you at some point and say, all right, now we're, you know, a year out. What do you think now? But I thank you all for joining me in this discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Kale Gibran Muhammad is a professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard University. Tamiko Brown Nagan is a professor of constitutional law and history at Harvard University. And Jim Demers is a political consultant with the Demers Group in New Hampshire. Coming up, do you serve it hot or cold, as a shot or in a glass? And is it like wine or not? Next, how two Waltham-based sake brewers are making this mystifying drink a little more accessible. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 